so we, we have this vision statement, like a lot of churches do, and there it is, in Christ-centered community um, for mission. And just to be clear, if you're not familiar with a church or the Bible or how these weird Christians kind of do their thing, uh, this isn't our um, slogan like Nike or something like that, uh, where every church has their slogan competing for an increasing shorter pool of uh, customers to attract them. You know, this isn't, uh, if, if that was the case, we'd come up with a better one than that. But um, this is actually a simple statement. I think this is why most churches do this. They try to find what's the Bible all about? What are we all about? So this is a simple statement to remind us of who we are, what we're all about, and why we're even here on a Sunday morning and do the other things that we do. We are a, Christ, a people centered on Christ. We're a community. We're not just individuals, but we're focused on a mission. So it's kind of like, you know, un, not unlike, some, rather than an advertising slogan, it's not unlike those mottos over the football tunnels that uh, different teams have, you know, play like a champion, you slap it right before you go out into the stadium to remind you of why you're there, you know, what you're doing. So maybe instead of having that little banner we used to have, I'll just put it above the back doors and you guys just make sure you hit it before you go out to the game. Um, but uh, it's, it's another way of making sure that the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. Uh, so uh, today we're in a text. If, if you wanted to say, well, where do you even get that in the Bible? It turns out there's one verse in the Bible that says that. And, it's, and we're in that text today in Philippians chapter 1. And no, four months ago when I was planning Philippians, I didn't plan to be here on the same day that we have our annual congregational meeting. Uh, but it really worked out perfectly to make me look good, but I had nothing to do with it. Uh, so we're going to look at these texts today that speak about Christ-centeredness, that speak about community, that speak about mission. And then I'm going to try to make some references in the, in the message to where I think we're really seeing fruit in these areas, and then some areas where I think we need to excel still more. And then you'll hear a couple more reports at our annual meeting immediately following um, the service today. But if you'll find Philippians chapter 1, and if you can't find it, if you don't have a Bible near you, it's actually in your bulletin. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning as I read this? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so now, Father, would you mercifully 
have the living water flow through this rusty pipe for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So I, I think you've kind of gotten the picture by now uh, that, uh, let's see, let's see, am I on? That's the next slide back there, Jake, if you want to do it. But by now you should be getting the idea that these passages that we have, that's okay. Are we doing a reboot back there? <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, you should be able to look in your bulletin and see the passage there. And by now you're probably getting a feel for the importance of a book like Philippians, where it's mostly a teaching type book, to slow down. I even said last week, consider writing it out, start looking at the words. And what, uh, what perhaps you would have discovered had you done that in 27 through 30 is that there is a theme that shows up in just a few verses here repeatedly, and it's all about the gospel, right? You could, you could outline it this way. Walk worthy of the gospel, strive for the gospel, suffer for the gospel. So walk worthy of the gospel, uh, strive for the gospel, and suffer for the gospel. And so that's how we're going to outline our little uh, message today. And in verse 27, this is the verse that I said, you could take our whole church vision statement from this. Uh, this, this whole idea of walking worthy of the gospel is Christ-centeredness, and then obviously we do it together, side by side, and we also struggle for something. The gospel is our mission. Oh, there you go, see? Uh, if you just put your head down, it shows up right in front of your face, but sometimes. But. And notice right away in verse 27, the first verse there, three times unity is emphasized in this, in this one little uh, verse. Um, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, there's the first one, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It'd almost be impossible to miss that, of the importance of unity here. And unity in a church, by the way, this verse should make this very clear. When we talk about unity in a church, we're not talking about people that get along. When we're talking about a church that's unified, we are not talking about a friendly church, as good as that is. We are in unity for something. And without that, we don't, what we have is really, I don't know what you'd call it. If it's not unity for something, if it isn't something that draws us together, if it's just the people-pleasing friendliness that does it, then that's not who we're all about. We're together for something. In this case, unity is a means to an end. And it should be obvious from verse 27 too, as you read it over and over again and hover over it, that this unity that, that's towards something, the gospel, this is, uh, this is not easy. So the first, what we're doing here, oh, I guess I can move ahead, aren't we? There we go. We're in this part, striving together for the gospel. And this unity is not easy, right? Otherwise, why would it say, why would it use these words standing firm or striving? And when you put these two words together, it's, it's all about um, holding ground with constant struggle. It's holding ground with constant struggle. In other words, it requires constant intentionality and constant intensity. This kind of unity that the Bible is talking about. Staying on focus for something. Uh, perseverance is a team sport. That's the simplest way to say this. 
Perseverance uh, is a team sport. It's like we're being called to lock arms together against uh, a force that just wants to uh, completely oppose us. Uh, and maybe, how many of you have ever heard of a Tough Mudder? I don't, they're not as popular as they used to be. Okay, some of you do. Well, it's this huge obstacle course uh, that you run through and, uh, well, I won't go into all the details, but anyway. But what's make, what makes it different than, say, a marathon is that you come, you do a Tough Mudder in teams, and you have to help your whole team get through each obstacle. Uh, that's the idea. You're not really there so much competing against other teams. You're just competing against your own time if you've ever done a Tough Mudder together before. But I love it because it's really very much a persevering sport, and it's about getting everybody over the wall. Uh, and so that's really what the, the Christian life is here. It's uh, sometimes we think of... Uh, a person who's really committed to the gospel is like a fisherman who's just great at catching fish. Well, don't think of evangelism as every believer has a fishing pole in their hand. Think of evangelism as the whole church has their hands on a fishing net. Some people have different places on it, but this is why it's all about this whole project that we are involved in. In fact, for us, you know, just a couple things where I've seen this happen. Uh, we had some men's events this year. And uh, what I loved about these two men's events is that they didn't come from top down. This wasn't the elders or the deacons coming up with yet another idea and let's, you know, put it out there and recruit people and let's get going. This came from the bottom up. It's the best kind of ministry. The only reason you do programs is so you can eliminate programs. So eventually there'll be stuff that comes from the grassroots up. And these were some great moments for us. Then we did last uh, season of Lent, we introduced this thing called the Jeremiah 29 project this last year. And that comes from the verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. It's when God's people, the Jews, have been taken away from their homeland. They've been put in foreign territory where they live as second-class citizens at best. And here's God's instructions to them. Live in the city, build houses Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city in which I have planted you. So how can we seek the welfare of our city around us? How can we be a blessing to our city? And so we did a project last year for that. And then we introduced this thing called the Fall Fest last year out here in the back parking lot. And it wasn't just about kind of giving you something to do in the fall. Uh, it was about creating a, a space where... Uh, people who don't know the Lord could come and just simply see us enjoying ourselves uh, being a family and uh, inviting them in to be a part of that family. And by the way, these two projects, the Jeremiah 29 one and the Fall Fest, uh, those did come from uh, the sort of top down. Let's throw these ideas out here. Now let's see if God raises up some people who want to actually take over those things for us. Uh, otherwise, they won't be on the calendar in the years to come. So, so that's for you to chew on. And then um, there's our small groups ministry, but I'll, I'm going to hold off on that. We're going to actually hear about that in the congregational meeting. But we went to Spain this year, a handful of us, and the word we is right. I wasn't there, but I was there, and so were you. So we sent a handful of people uh, to Spain. But it wasn't just so that we could check the box, short-term mission trip, the whole reason we went to Spain and the whole reason we'll keep going to places is we are asking the Lord to give us 
a, a location outside of our normal culture where we can, we can learn from other believers, we can minister to unbelievers, and we can do it alongside of, in the best case, with one of our own missionaries. And then we can keep going back to that place every other year on a regular basis and building long-term relationships with them as opposed to just doing a sort of airdrop in different places around the world all the time. So we don't know if Spain's going to be that place, but I love the fact that we have a scouting team and we're intentionally going after that. Those are some of the ways we are striving together for the gospel. So how can we excel still more in this area? So I, I would have never thought this 10, 15 years ago when I first heard this statement in Christ-centered community for mission. If someone had asked me, what's the hardest part of that vision statement? My instinctive reaction would have been mission. It's just hard to get people out and get going and actually be a light to the world. That's the hardest part for me. That's the hardest part for us. Well, you've heard me say this many times before. Do you know the hardest part of that vision statement is community? Even though I would say we have an enormously healthy community compared to most churches. But community still remains the hardest part of that vision statement. And I, you've heard me say this word before, proximity. It's all about how much time we spend in face-to-face -face time with one another. Now, our small groups are, do, are doing an a lot of them are doing an excellent job of this. You'll hear about that later. But what about all of us together as an extended family? And you've also heard me say this probably until you're sick of hearing it, but here it is again. Uh, a generation ago, in the average local church, the average committed person, not just the off-the-charts committed person, the average committed person would be together as a church family three times a week on average, sometimes four. Uh, so you count that out per month, even if you lose a week, what is that, it's 12 times together per month, so you're just, proximity breeds depth of relationship, it breeds togetherness. Today, that average is probably around 2 to 2.5 a month. So we've gone in one generation from 12 times together to about 2.5 times together. So proximity is one word, the other word is roots. Now, there are some of you that are wonderfully off the charts in this area, in this church. I mean, we have people here that have been here since the beginning of it, over 40-some years ago. But when you live in a world where people move on an average 11 times a year, and by the way, that doesn't include how many times they change churches, I'm guessing it's more, uh, 11 times a year, it's really hard to grow a tree that produces shade when you're transplanting it that often. <laughs> So proximity and roots are something that we need to continue to work on. It's very easy for a church. And by the way, just a, another footnote, one of the reasons we're talking about expanding this building, it's all about the need, not because we need space, but we need proximity. Now, will that give it to us? I don't know. That's what we're thinking about. But that's the reason we're serious about considering an idea like that is because of this need for more space to be together. But it's easy for churches, instead of being a community for mission, it's easier to think that our mission is community. And our mission isn't community. Community is a means to an end, 
which is mission. And it's why it's so important for that to happen. So striving for the gospel and then uh, being together, which is a part I just said. So we'll just move on from there. There we go. To suffering for the gospel, which is the verses 28 through 30 of this text. And here it should be, if, again, if you wrote this text out and had fun with it, and you notice that it kind of changed its focus in verse 28 a little bit. Um, after telling them what to do, it tells them what not to be afraid of. Uh, and then if you notice, verse 28 speaks about our opponents, and verse 38 speaks about a conflict, the same conflict the Apostle Paul have has. They also are experiencing this. And this should not be a surprise uh, to anyone if you've been around the Bible for any length of time. But following Jesus means experiencing opposition, right? Uh, if you've lived with Jesus for any length of time at all, it means experiencing not only external opposition, but every time you have external opposition, the horizontal, it always provokes internal opposition. It's the, th it's the thing that happened to our Savior in the garden. He was being tempted seriously to give up his mission. And then he had to, ha what did he do? He went horizontal. He had to say to the Lord, Lord, I want your will, not mine. I mean, there was a struggle between him and the Father as much as there was between him and Satan. And here, we, you know, we, and again, we see it everywhere in the Bible. In John chapter 15, Jesus is about to leave his disciples. And after telling them, love one another, you better have a tight community, John 15. In the very next verse, he says, because the world's going to hate you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. It's just the, just comes with the territory. Or if not John 15, it's Acts 14 when the Apostle Paul goes back and revisits all the churches and says, let me remind you, don't forget this. Through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom. There's no other way to get from here to the kingdom without many tribulations. And uh, Romans 8 speaks about believers as groaning right alongside physical creation because we're waiting for redemption. 2 Timothy 3 says, All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says, Look, if... if Jesus suffered in the flesh. You arm yourselves to suffer in the flesh as well. Should I get 17 more verses? You kind of get the idea. Okay. Here's the problem with the, the Philippians. To believe in the one true God in Philippi, to become a Christian in the Philippi. Just think about this for half a moment. Just as I, as I share about the Philippians, think, is there any parallel to our day? Hmm. To believe in the one true God was to not believe in the gods of the land. To believe in the one true God was to not believe in the gods of Rome. Did you know that early Christians were called atheists? Because they didn't believe in the gods of the land, all the, God, all the Roman gods. You know what else they were called? Traitors. They faced opposition. But as this verse goes on to say, 28 through 30, it's always the case. Remember the word always? It's always the case that God surrounds hard realities in the Bible with real hope. 
God surrounds hard realities in the Bible with real hope. Let's look at it here. Don't be frightened, verse 28, by anything by your opponents because it's a sign. You may not believe this, but you know the heat that you're experiencing right now that you wish God would take away yesterday? It's actually a sign. Now, it's a different sign to different people. To those who don't belong to me, it's evidence that their, that their future involves destruction. For you, it's evidence that your presence involves endorsement. Their future involves destruction. Your presence right now means this is, a, this is an indication that God's actually endorsing you. If it costs you something to follow Jesus, if you feel the threat of becoming an increasingly unpopular individual, by the way, not an obnoxious individual, if you're one of those obnoxious Christians that knows you're right and makes sure everyone else tells you that, that, and you make sure everyone else knows they're wrong, uh, why don't you come up here and have a conversation with me? And we'll do a little baptism and keep you down longer than normal. But um, <laughs> that wasn't part of my script. I don't know how that came in here, but um, sorry about that. I, but I, here's what I want you to see that surprised me. I, I don't know how many times I read this before I finally saw, wow, what is that all about? Here it is at the end of verse 28. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And again, if there had been a period right there, we would have missed out on so much. But there's four more words. And that from God. Now, of course, when I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, well, what does the that refer to? I think it refers to the pressure of these opponents. There's, it, the very presence of these opponents comes from God. Can I put it this way? In fact, the reason I think that is look, look at what it goes on to say in verse 29. Because it has been granted to you. Do you know that the word granted there also means gifted to you? It has been gifted to you not only to believe. Did you know that you didn't believe first? I mean, in a sense, God, it wasn't, you didn't believe all on your own. Did you know that God enabled you to believe? It says it right there. God granted you, gifted you not only the ability to believe, but guess what? He also gave you the blessing of suffering for his sake. God, thank you for such a gift. Yeah, not usually, right? Uh, that's why I appreciate this one book in the Bible that I think needs to be read more and more with every decade that, that goes by. It didn't used to be one of my favorites, but boy, it is becoming it. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book that says... Face reality and God at the same time. So in the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's easy. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. And if it had stopped there, we would have said, okay, okay. But then there's this strange little phrase. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And at that point, you know, the question marks come popping out of your head. What is that all about? Well, very simply, God is telling us one of the wisest things you can realize is the limitations of your wisdom. What's the most, what's the most often asked question in churches throughout the ages? 
I always, even on the question board back there, it eventually came up, but it was too late to include in our question classes that we're having here. It's this, why is there such evil in the world and such pain when God could do something about it? To which this verse, Ecclesiastes 7, basically says this, embrace the mystery. I like what one person said. This problem of evil it's not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be endured. We don't really have the greatest answer for that. We think we do. But really, it's also a mystery to be endured. We can, because we're believers, we can expect Christ's sufferings to redeem our sufferings that we cannot completely explain. That's the beauty of the gospel here. And it's this whole process of Having to suffer for the gospel is something we can't completely explain. It's a problem we can't completely solve, but it is a mystery we can trust God to endure. So how do we suffer for the gospel here? Well, <laughs> I knew this might come out wrong when I, when I put this up there. Uh, so we're, we're adding an elder to suffer uh, in, in, in this church. And that doesn't really, that's not what I'm getting at here. Uh, today we're uh, voting on Justin Lippy. Uh, to be our next elder. And now uh, Justin's probably sitting there thinking, I, do I have time to get out? Um, elders, I've told this to Justin early on, elders are more than just people that come together and have some meetings a couple times a month uh, and sort of think through the vision of the church and plan things. Elders carry a weight. That's what we invite them to do. We, we invite them to carry a weight like... Like a woman came up to me in my previous church one time and she said to me, she was an avid homeschooler, and she said, it just dawned on me, you have to homeschool 300 kids. And I thought, that's a great way to describe it sometimes. And not to say anything about you guys, okay? Um, but there is a certain weight. There's a certain part. That's part of the suffering. It's part of the suffering we're called to. And, and when there's just one or two elders, that weight is intensified. And as we add other elders, they share in that weight together. And that's the beauty of uh, us continuing to expand uh, this, these leadership foundations. And then uh, most of you know we have a church that is, emphasizes biblical counseling for a number of years now. And particularly in the last probably 18 months, we've been working on this idea of trying to start a biblical counseling center for all of mid-Michigan, uh, a place where that would be funded by different churches, uh, and uh, this, this uh, eventually would staff a team of biblical counselors and a director running that. And the whole idea would be to uh, access this for people who uh, want to come in and be able to deal with their strugglings and their sufferings in life. And I, I, I would think this is a no-brainer for everybody uh, here, but... When you live in a society that has, at a rapid pace over the last two generations, removed trust in the three foundational things for a society not to fall completely apart, those foundational things being a family, the church, and the government. When you, when you remove those, especially the family, all of a sudden people's lives start coping and fragmenting, and they're processing and bearing all kinds of things. I'm just talking about believers now. There's enough need for uh, just believers alone to be in counseling.
uh, on a regular basis, that we're not even talking about unbelievers, which I still think biblical counseling can become one of our most successful evangelistic tools because people are shutting the front door on evangelism, but they're opening the back door on suffering. So we are, we're, we're, we've had some setbacks in getting this biblical counseling center off the ground, but we are still, by the grace of God, persevering and uh, uh, struggling to get there, and I, I think we will. I really think we're close to turning the corner on that. We would love to start a recovery ministry here. Eric and I have been talking about that for a number of years. We're already involved in the Endeavor House out on Waverly Road, but we'd like to use this space as a place to begin people meeting for recovery. And there are a lot more addictions out there than just chemical substances, by the way. Uh, and then finally, I would just, uh, we're not going to talk about this at the congregational meeting, but I'll mention it right now. In January, the elders are going on our annual retreat, and this year we have some long-term things to talk about. Long-term things like, uh, well, I'll just say broadly, you know, let's just say that, the, that I'm not going to live forever, so there's that to talk about. Uh, no, I'm not making any announcements about any short-term thing. Don't go there. But we, are, we do, do, do need to be ready for that. Secondly, the Lord, this is the biggest thing. We are in a weird place, and I probably shouldn't say this when it comes time to voting on a budget, but um, most churches have huge opportunities and very little funding. You know what we have? Huge funding, but not a lot of opportunities. And, uh, and we want the Lord to speak to us. Lord, what do you want us to do with all this money that's been coming to us? Money that we haven't even asked for sometimes. Do you want us to start something, launch something? Do you want us to expand this facility? Uh, pray that uh, that holy pressure would turn into some holy plans. Uh, so that's coming up uh, in January. So those are ways I think we need to continue to press forward through some of this suffering for the gospel. Finally, living worthy of the gospel. And I think this is the, this is the premier piece of 27 through 30, and I left it toward the end here. The word worthy in verse 27 means to carefully protect something like a treasure. So when I graduated from high school, I'm 18 years old, my mother hands me this gold watch, wrist watch, that was her father's watch. It's kind of a big deal. Within six months, I'd lost it. I obviously didn't value that the way my mother had all of those years. You can't recover that. That's what it speaks about the gospel. Do we value it like that gold watch? And this, interestingly, this little phrase here in verse 27, let your manner of life, is the same exact phrase. It could be translated this way, be a citizen. Be a citizen. It's used in uh, chapter 3, actually, verse 20 that way. What Paul is doing is he he's tapping into something familiar here. You know how this same phrase was used by the civil leaders in Philippi? Act like a good Roman. That's essentially what he's saying here. So he's tapping into a, a, a very familiar idea, and he's pointing it to something superior. What he's really saying at the beginning of verse 27 is this. Don't forget this. We are patriots of another nation. We are patriots of another nation. We are citizens of heaven, ultimately. 
And so one of the things we've done recently is uh, we've changed our adult hour. To, we've called it this adult equipping hour. Those five questions that we've been working on in the 930 hour together, they, they came out of an experiment we did last year with about two dozen people in this church, a biblical wisdom class that went for about nine months. And what's motivating these classes, these questions and things is, is what's going on in our culture right now. There's a big difference, according to James chapter 3, between biblical wisdom, which leads to humility and peace, and earthly wisdom, which leads to uh, selfish ambition and disorder that comes out so beautifully in the political tribalism that is ruining the church in America. Someone put it this way, that the left think that the right is irredeemably racist, and the right think that the left are irredeemably woke. Well, that's the kind of thinking that should not be in the head and the hearts of someone who's a patriot of another nation, someone who belongs to Jesus, who's cultivating biblical wisdom, who has pledged their allegiance first and foremost and exclusively to the king of Jesus, the Jesus the king, who is very much alive and very much reigning over all nations. As a result, we know, we can begin to know if we cultivate biblical wisdom, how to realize that in every controversy and everything that disturbs us, there's always some baby and there's always some bathwater. There's always some lies and there's always some longings. And biblical wisdom doesn't just reject it outright, it sifts through it patiently and cultivates wisdom on what's really going on here and how do we make connections. So that's one of the reasons we have this adult equipping emphasis. It's also one of the reasons, believe it or not, we have weekly communion, not because of political tribalism, but because weekly communion helps us see week after week the worth of the gospel. As one person put it, if we want to be gospel-centered, why not make the Christ-ordained portrayal of the gospel bread and cup, a centerpiece in our weekly worship, which is where we're going next and which is why as we think about this idea of preparing for communion, I just want you to take a moment and think about this question of the worthiness of the gospel. Do you know the worth of the gospel? Take just a second as you think about that. I'm going to say one more thing about it, but I'm going to have the worship team come forward and those uh, serving communion as well. And if you're visiting with us, you're welcome to come and take of the bread and cup. If you know Jesus as your Savior, the only one who can save you from your sin, and if you know him as your King, the one who reigns over your life, this, you're welcome at this table. And you just come up the center aisle, and then I'll lead us in just a moment in taking communion together. But I wonder, is the gospel for you like money in the bank, like in a savings account? You're saving it for a day when things are really bad, so then you can see how trustworthy it is? Or do you realize that this gospel is meant to be spent? Uh, it's meant to be consulted and trusted in not only the most monstrous moments of your life, but even the most mundane moments of your life. The gospel has something to say in that scenario.
In fact, it actually multiplies the more you spend it. Next week, we're going to have something we call a Thanksgiving fest here. And if you want to prepare for it, here's, here's a simple assignment to help you see the worth of the gospel. Just take a piece of paper and every day see if you can write one sentence about the, something you have because of the death and resurrection of Christ that can never be taken from you. Just see if you can put seven things on there. Better yet, maybe share it, cheat, cheat. Share it with others so that then you could bring your paper and we'll have a basket right here as we take communion next week. And you can take that piece of paper and give it to the Lord in that basket as a thank offering. And this isn't a competition. Uh, this is just something for you in your heart. You know, maybe it would turn out that instead of just seven things on there, by the end of the week, there could be 70 things on there. It's just a good way to rehearse the gospel. Let's pray together and then you come. Father, we are grateful for the bread and cup and say thank you right now for that. This death of Christ and his resurrection, the death of our sin and the resurrection of a new hope that cannot be extinguished even by our disobedience. We have a perfect forever relationship with you, not a contract with you based upon our goodness and our obedience, but a guarantee based on the goodness of your son and his obedience that have become ours. For that we thank you, for that we come, and we celebrate in this gospel with such immense worth in Jesus' name.